Good evening. I'll be reading Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 and 39. And I would like to echo what Dr. Hillier said this morning, that these are the words of God. Not my words, obviously, the words of God. And I ask that you listen closely. And Jesus said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Two soldiers of fortune were offered $200 for every enemy soldier they could capture. They searched for several days without any success whatsoever. They couldn't even find a single trace of an enemy soldier. That night, one of the men was... As they were lying next to the campfire, they went to sleep discouraged, thinking that they would not be at all successful and were ready to give up. But that night, one of the men awakened to the feel of cold steel, a blade against his throat. He looked up to see the biggest enemy soldier that he had ever seen straddling him, holding a huge machete against his throat. But that wasn't the worst of it. There were enemy soldiers all around the camp. They completely surrounded the camp. In fact, they... There must have been a thousand of them. As he lay there with enemy soldiers all around him, the blade of the machete almost puncturing the flesh of his throat, he very carefully punched his partner next to him, awoke him, and whispered, Josh, wake up, we're rich. That man had succeeded in seeing life in a positive light. I think in this series of lessons we would be remiss, and I know that we've talked a great deal about making sure we get our thinking right. In fact, as recently as last Sunday night, we talked about choosing our thoughts. But tonight I hope that we appreciate that when we do make the choices that we need to make day by day, that those are not just as they pertain to our activities, our actions. Although that is a part of the list. That is, you decide whether you're going to get up, you're going to decide what you have for breakfast, and so on. So a lot of those things that are on our list of choices, decisions that have to be made on a daily basis, are about our actions, obviously. But I believe that the Lord also wants us to know that paramount of importance is also choosing our attitudes and making sure that we're getting up with the, with the right motivations and that we're doing what we're doing in terms of activity for the right reasons. It's very possible, I think, for us to do right things with wrong motives and still be displeasing to God. I hope that we'll appreciate that and kind of file that away somewhere in our minds as we walk through this lesson tonight. But the man that we just illustrated really had learned how to look at life, even in the worst of circumstances, in a positive light. He could see the bright side even in a desperate situation. And I believe that when we look at God's word, we find that fruit that glorifies God is produced by those who approach life with that kind of positive attitude. That is, as one brother has said, I, don't, I think I've used this illustration before, but it's been a long time, lived over in Oklahoma. And one of his neighbors that saw him every morning as he went to get his newspaper off the front sidewalk, and then later as he would come back out and get in his truck to go to work, was at, at, finally asked him after about two years of living next door to him, why are you always so happy? And you're always whistling or singing when you come out of the house. And he said, I'll tell you, it's three reasons. My past is forgiven, my present is meaningful, and my future is secure. 
So why in the world shouldn't I be happy? And that's really, I think, an appropriate response for every child of God. Whether we ever have an opportunity to vocalize that to someone or not is another matter. But that's the attitude that God wants us to approach life with each day. And of all people, Christians can be confident and we can be positive in our attitude because we know that we're living within the framework of the will of a sovereign God who loves us and wants only that which is best for us. And surely we all, at least at some level of our minds, we agree with that principle. But I think most of us have some trouble doing that, at least on a consistent basis. That is, we allow the circumstances and the situations of life to overwhelm us, and all of a sudden, if we were to be honest with ourselves, we we have to admit that our attitude isn't what it should be. Any one of us can be optimistic, positive, and enthusiastic for 60 seconds. Most of us could be optimistic and, and, and positive for 60 minutes. But the person who can learn to be optimistic and positive about life for, fix, for 60 years is the person that's going to be a true success in life. And I think we can develop that attitude by learning three important lessons that are found in God's Word. Because, again, there's, there's no really better approach nor greater foundation upon which to build proper attitudes than the framework of God's will. So lesson number one seems antithetical to the world, but to those of us who are God's people, if we've been Christians for long enough, I think it makes perfect sense. One way to get our attitude right and to keep it right is to make sure that we're looking beyond self. That is, we realize that it's not all about me, and it's not all about you either. We recognize that this universe does not revolve around any one of us. No Christian, I believe, is doomed to spiritual mediocrity. Something extraordinary is always within reach if we're following God's will. There's nothing beyond the capability of one who is living within the framework of God's will. And that really is a dynamic thought. And I really wish that we could get the dynamite out of all of those verses that really talk about how that we do serve a powerful God. And that God wants the best for us. And that if we're trying to seek God's will with our lives each day, that he will bless us in so doing. Or as Paul stated it so well in Philippians 4.13, and I, I know I don't have to remind you as a Bible student that Paul was writing this from a Roman prison. He said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That was the source of his power. And I've mentioned a number of times from this pulpit... And whenever I'm speaking on this subject in other places, as I did just a few weeks ago here in Montgomery, I remind people that if you, if you dichotomize that verse, it, it really has two separate meanings because it has two separate origins. By this I mean, if Paul had just said, I can do all things, that's positive mental attitude. But that's not what he said. He didn't say, I can do it all just by the power of positive thinking. He said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Paul wanted everybody to understand that the source of the power and the strength in his life did not come from himself. It came from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think Paul had to discover that somewhere on his Christian walk. But he wanted us to appreciate that fact so that we wouldn't have to go years and years in kingdom service and finally learn that lesson. So the first key to a godly attitude is learning to go beyond ourselves. You know, the beauty of being a Christian is that we don't have to depend only on ourselves. And, and by that, I don't mean any kind of absconding of personal responsibility or accountability. I, I've said recently that I think sometimes we folks want to take this let go and let God to an extreme. That is, I want God to do everything in my life. I want him to do it for me. That's not what we're talking about. But we are understanding, as Paul did, 
that the real power comes from a God that we serve. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might is what Paul said in, in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. That of course is within the framework of the context of the Christian armament. When Paul said even if you have deliberately by a conscious decision of will put on the entire armor that will help you to be able to defend yourself against the wiles of the devil in this world, even then you need to appreciate it isn't just because of your own ingenuity. It isn't just because of your own initiative. It is through the power of God that you will be protected from the evil one and you will win the battle here on earth. And so Paul wants us to understand that, and it's key for us being able to have the right attitude day by day. Paul talked about that, of course, in his letter to the Philippians. We just quoted chapter 4, verse 13. But he wrote also in verse 9 of that same chapter, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Now, you kind of have to know Paul in order to be able to appreciate the meaning of and the intent of that verse. You read that and you think, well, Paul, man, he didn't have any problems with self-confidence, did he? Because he's saying to those Philippian Christians, if you've seen me do it, then you'll be okay with doing it. Whatever you've seen in me, if you'll practice that, then, then you will be spiritually safe. But, but, but the question that I want to ask is, where did he get that kind of confidence? Did he just evaluate his own personal resources his own intellect, his own spiritual strength, and say, folks, don't worry, just walk in my footsteps and you'll be okay. Now, I don't believe that's where his strength came from at all. He had, by the way, received the best education available in his day from Gamaliel, according to Acts 22 and verse 3. Somebody said that that's like having the first century equivalent of a PhD. So, so Paul was an intellectual guy. He was a smart man. And the book of of Acts leaves little doubt that Paul was a man of extraordinary ability. But was it his education? Was it his background? Was it his ability that was responsible for all of Paul's remarkable achievements? And obviously the short answer to that is absolutely not. Paul gladly admitted that it was through Christ that he was able to do all things. He made himself available to the Lord and the Lord took over from there. Said another way, Christ living in him made it possible for him to move ahead in whatever direction that the Lord chose for him. So Paul always acknowledged personally and to anyone who was willing to listen that the source of his strength and power was in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can we do any different? I think we need to learn a lesson from Paul and implement that in our own lives. Paul lived and acted in the belief that God was in control. Maybe that's where the breakdown comes. Maybe that we're not so certain that God really is in control. If you read the Montgomery Advertiser, as I did, well, at least select parts of it this morning before I came to the church building, you realize that it's a wicked world out there. And I don't mean in some far and distant land. I mean right here in Montgomery, Alabama. You can read the newspaper or watch it online or on TV, and you can come to the conclusion that the wrong side is winning. But that's not what God's word says. God is in control. Paul realized that. That's why he had that kind of confidence. And by making himself available to God, he accepted power beyond himself to be able to address and then handle whatever task that lay in front of him. Paul did not accept, I can't, as a valid response. In fact, he probably refused to even ask himself the question, Can I do this or can I do that? Rather, I think that Paul was asking in every situation, Is this 
the will of God? And if the answer to that question was yes, then Paul's attitude was full steam ahead. We need to do it. No matter what the personal cost or sacrifice involved might be, let's do what it is that God wants us to do. As we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Paul ultimately died the death of a martyr. He was beheaded because of his faith and proclamation of the gospel. He meant what he said when he, when he said in his letters and in his own personal life, whatever it is that God wants me to do, that's what I want to be doing. He knew that that's where the conformity to the will of God, really where the power source was. There's always power beyond ourselves for what lies ahead. One preacher admitted in his own words, because I read it in, in one of a chapter at least about him. He said, and I'm quoting now, I struggled in my ministry until I realized that I could not do it, but that God could. Victories started coming when I finally learned to depend on him rather than on my own abilities. I think that's deeply insightful. And I think it's worth consideration by every single one of us. Where is the, strength, the power and the source of strength in your life? Is it from your own education, from your own abilities? Is it from charisma, personality plus, or other resources that you may possess that other people around you don't really have? No, it can't be any of those if we're talking about spiritual success. Real spiritual success comes in acknowledging that it isn't about us. The power comes from God. It's true that the Lord is more interested in our availability than he is in our ability. And it seems that the Lord chose his apostles on the basis of their willingness to serve rather than by, by their talents. I think we would all acknowledge that. As he was walking by the seashore and he was looking at those blue-collar workers, those common fishermen, chose some of those men, at least, to be his apostles. Not from the ivory towers, not that there's anything wrong with an education, nothing at all. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he chose these men who were common laborers and said, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. That's absolutely mind-boggling to me. And that's because he understood and, and he eventually would get them to understand that with him, they could do anything at all. Please appreciate that he still chooses disciples the same way today. He is less concerned about our ability than he is about our availability. Acts 4.13 is a passage you're familiar with. But it's still a, a uh, well, almost shocking passage when you look at it and think about its implications. Because it's talking about the Sanhedrin's impression, which was basically the Supreme Court of their day. The Sanhedrin's impression of two of the Lord's apostles. Here's what the passage says. When they, that is the Sanhedrin, saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. You know the passage. By the standards, of the standards of the Sanhedrin, Peter and John were uneducated. They were men of just ordinary ability. But in spite of that, they had so affected the people of Jerusalem that the Supreme Court of that day looked at these men and said, I'm paraphrasing of course, what in the world is going on here? How can two men who just came off the riverbank fishing, how can they come in and, and stir this city up like this? Acts 17.1 begins in a similar way. When they saw the disciples of Jesus coming into the city, 
They said those who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Think about the impact of that in the first century world. Think about the impact that that could have in our lives in the 21st century world. If we really come to believe that it isn't about us, that the power comes from beyond us. How could such a thing happen? That's what the Sanhedrin wanted to know. Where did these men get that kind of power? Where did that come from? We want to know what the source is. I mean, is there something supernatural going on here? And the answer, of course, would be yes. The only answer, I think, that can be properly supplied is the one that's found in Acts 4.13. They took knowledge that these men had been with Jesus. The only thing that qualified and equipped them to do what they did and to turn the world upside down for the, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ was their association with the Lord himself. And the answer is still, uh, I think, relevant in our lives today. Jesus told them in Acts 1 verse 8, But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Peter and John and the other apostles had a power beyond themselves to do the work of the Lord. We have, let me remind you, we have the same Holy Spirit living within us and directing our work through his word today. The exact same spirit of God. There's no reason to shy away from the most difficult task. We have the same potential to reach our world for Christ as did Peter, John, and Paul. A man who has taught a great number of aspiring young preachers once said, brilliance and exceptional ability sometimes get in the way of our spiritual achievement. You may have to think about that. That is, sometimes it is our reliance upon our ability or maybe our knowledge that can actually hinder our spiritual achievement. He went on to explain, and I'm quoting, he must look to the Lord rather than depending only on his own ability. Great ability and learning will take us only a short distance at best, but the Lord can take us all the way. It's true that ability is a blessing and that education is very, very important. But high achievers, as you well know, are not always blessed with great ability or with an extensive education. I've grown to believe the truth of a statement that I heard a Bible teacher make many years ago. And what he said was, whatever you have plus the Lord's power is enough to get the job done 100% of the time. I believe he's exactly right. Here's a second factor that needs to be in place if we're going to have the right attitude with which to approach each day. And that is, we need to trust God's power. I've already built the foundation for that thought. But let's build on it for just a moment. That key, I believe, is absolutely essential for us choosing the right attitude each day. God's power is available to everyone who will trust him enough to use that power. You see, that is both the enigma and the blessing of our relationship to God. Isaiah wrote, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15, In quietness and trust is your strength. Boy, I'd like to be in a Bible class with you people where we could kick that around for a while. In quietness. What does that have to do with, with our strength that comes from the Lord? I think it has a great deal to do with it. That's where I'd like to hear from you. But in quietness and in trust. Now, that's, that's a little easier to understand when, when we trust in God. I mean, really trust and rely on his power, on his sovereignty, and on his, his love for each one of us then that will build the foundation for the rest of your life. I remember when my dad was a plumbing, electrical, and building contractor, which was for most of my growing up years, 
And when he had the opportunity to preach, it was in the small congregations in the North Georgia mountains, only on, by Sunday appointment. But Dad was, was a hardworking man, a man of industry. And I remember on one occasion, almost as if it were, you know, a, a Christmas present, he brought home a, a, a piece of apparatus that I had never s- seen before except from a distance. And it was uh, those harnesses that the guys who climb utility poles... Back in those days, they were all made out of wood, so these, uh, the spikes on these harnesses was what allowed, allowed a man, you know, to stick a spike in one side of the utility pole and then on the other side and work his way up the pole. Dad brought a pair of those home. And he said, Rando, try these on. Well, I did. And, and I looked them over very carefully before I tried them on. But when I climbed that pole... Dad said, now what you got to do, of course, there's a safety harness that was wrapped around and anchored on, on the pole as I worked my way up. He said, the only, the only way you get your hands free, because here I was, you know, at the top of the pole, I guarantee you, these arms were wrapped around the pole. He said, you could never work on a utility pole like that. You got to lean back in the harness and you got to trust it to take your weight And that way you'll be free to be able to do whatever you needed to do when you're at the top of the pole. You know what? That sounded good in theory. (laughs) But I just could not trust myself to lean back in that harness. And as I mentioned a moment ago, I'd given it a pretty close examination as as good as a 10-year-old could. And made sure that it was sturdy, it was strong, it could take my my limited weight in in those days. I tested it before climbing the pole. I knew, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that it could handle my weight. And so I looked at it that very carefully and and it had passed that muster. But for some reason I just, just had a problem with leaning back in it when I'm 35 feet off the ground. My experience, I think, on that pole, kind of similar to the experience of some people who who full well know that God is sufficient. But they still have difficulty in, in allowing him to have their full weight. To trust him daily with the big and the small things of life. You know, I can think of several reasons why people might find it hard to trust in God's power. Number one, we won't trust anyone we don't know. And if we've not really experienced God's power and his strength in a personal way, then we might be reluctant to trust him in the pressure points of life. Second, we won't trust God's power when we focus on the failure around us and we assume, we assume that that's the rule, that everybody is, is walking fearfully and trepidatiously through this world. We somehow forget that we can't base our beliefs about God on what we observe in other people. Are you hearing me now? If you look around and you see how other people live their lives and the attitudes that they take into their day, day by day, you might assume that that's the way everybody thinks and the way everybody acts. That's not the case. Number three, we tend to distrust God's power when we evaluate it in light of our own ability. You know, we're reluctant to respond to God's power when we attribute our weakness to a lack of God's power. If I can't do it, that must, uh, I must assume that God is limited in his power. No, that's not a proper connection. Fourth, we may not be able to trust God's power because we've been conditioned to believe that to trust someone else is a sign of weakness. I think that's where a lot of people are. It's a prevalent philosophy in our world today. One other possibility. We may not trust God's power simply because we've never been taught to do so. And I think that we need to be taking proper steps to rectify that situation. Folks, I I don't want anybody to be a member of the University Church of Christ or even to worship with us here 
and leave this building thinking that we do not serve a powerful God. Amen. We need to, we need to demonstrate in our lives, collectively and individual, that God is, is a powerful God. That God can do anything. And that God is interested in what's going on in our lives. He is an all-powerful God, and that power is spoken of in virtually every page of Scripture. I remind you that he's the one who calls the waters of the Red Sea to roll back so that the children of Israel could walk through on dry land. He calls the walls of Jericho to fall at the sound of a trumpet, producing a great victory for his people. He's the one who created the heavens and the earth in just six days. And that's what the Bible says, folks. And let me tell you, I believe every word of the Bible. I believe that the donkey talked and the axe head floated. Our Lord calmed the sea. He walked on the water. He cleansed the leper. He raised Lazarus from the dead with a word. And he healed the woman who merely touched his garment. Do I need to say it? We serve the same powerful God today. Don't ever forget that. Take that home with you. Pray about it. Meditate on it. And wake up tomorrow with a renewed attitude toward life. We serve a powerful God. Psalm 127 verse 1 I think says it best. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but will endure forever. One last consideration. Lesson number three is that we need to trust God's love. Not just his power, but also his love. Matthew's account tells us that there was a man with leprosy. This is Matthew chapter 8, starting really in the early part of that chapter. Tells of a man who had leprosy who came and knelt before Jesus. You may remember his words recorded in Matthew 8 verse 2. He said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now I preach sermons on that, but I just want to bring that in very briefly as a reference point. That man knew that Jesus had the power to heal his disease or else he wouldn't have wasted his time. He said, I know that you're able, but will you? And that just maybe he had heard about what Jesus was doing. Maybe he had even seen some of Jesus' miraculous works as he, as he walked around various places. Matthew doesn't tell us why that the leper had that kind of faith in Jesus' ability to heal. But there's no doubt that he believed in the power of Jesus. And I also need to remind you just here that the agony of being afflicted with leprosy in the time of Jesus went beyond just physical suffering. If you've ever seen pictures or videos of people, even in our day, who have leprosy, it is a heinous disease. But you think about the emotional and psychological implications of having that kind of disease, especially in the time of Jesus. Those who had leprosy were considered unclean. And so as not to infect others, they were forced to live as outcasts. They often lived in caves. And sometimes they even lived in graveyards. That was the only place that society considered was fit for them. They weren't permitted contact with what was considered to be normal people. And this particular leper acknowledged the power of Jesus to be able to heal him. But at the same time, having experienced rejection from, from his neighbors, in fact, from his family and everyone who knew him, he seemed to wonder if Jesus, if Jesus cared enough about him to use that power and so he came with that request, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. But Jesus dispelled any doubt about his caring nature by reaching out and touching that afflicted man. Perhaps 
as some commentators have suggested, the first physical contact that that man had experienced in his adult life. And verse 3 said that Jesus said, I am willing be clean, and the man was cured immediately, verse 3. That leper's heart must have sung when Jesus dared to reach out and even just touch him. A man who himself was clean, Jesus a teacher with crowds following after him, had actually cared enough to reach out and touch the untouchable. And what a blessing that must have been to the one who so often was reminded of his condition by cries of unclean as people literally ran away from him. This Jesus recognized the physical problem. But man, did he ever react differently than other people had reacted. Could there be any doubt about the love of the Lord? He reached out and he touched him. How can we doubt the love of the Father today? When we contemplate the golden texts of the Bible, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. How can we doubt the love of Jesus, the son, when we read in scripture, greater love has no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends, John 15, 13. One who regularly reads the Bible, believing it to be truth, cannot doubt, I think, for, for very long the magnitude of God's power, nor the depth of his love. His power and his love are... I mean, they're everywhere from from Genesis to Revelation. And a godly attitude is easy to achieve, folks, when we trust both God's power and his caring nature, when we can pillow our heads every night with the absolute certain knowledge that our Lord loves us. And don't miss that. My message to you tonight can be summed up in one statement. God is both able and willing. All kinds of possibilities open up when we honestly are able to grasp the truth of that statement. I want to end with a simple story. The events of a particular day in my childhood have remained with me for many years. I was 10 or 11 years old. The two boys who were with me that day were cousins who were a few years older than me, and so they had seniority. We came to a stream that was several yards across. The two older boys easily jumped it. That left, guess who, on the other side. They coaxed me from the other side, come on, you can do it. Well, maybe not exactly in those words. There was something about a wimp thrown in there. But I backed up and ran toward that creek, all the while wondering, can I really do this? And as I came closer to the creek's edge, there was no doubt left in my mind. It was kind of like the father trying to get his little boy to have a better attitude towards sports. And the little boy was playing Little League Baseball. They'd lost every game. And so he told his dad, we're going to lose again today. Dad said, you need to be more positive. He said, okay, I'm positive we're going to lose today. And that's kind of the mindset that I had. When I got to the edge of that creek, there was no doubt in my mind that I couldn't jump it. So in a split second that I had left, I couldn't decide whether to jump or to stop. And so you guessed it. I did both. And I wound up in the middle of the creek, waist deep in water and mud. That's the the price that you pay for uncertainty. But the story doesn't end there. Just a few days later, I guess to prove to myself more than to anyone, I jumped that same creek and this time with confidence and with determination and I had no problem clearing it. 
You know, when we approach life with the certainty that we have someone greater than ourselves watching our every step, concerned with our very actions and every word and every thought, when we approach each day with, with the trust in God's power and his absolute love for us, we will try and we will accomplish feats that other people may consider to be impossible. It's like the words of that great song from Man of La Mancha, to dream the impossible dream. God allows his people to do that. A positive, godly attitude toward life will keep us out of the mud and the mire of life while enabling us to be of maximum usefulness and service to a good God. And the Bible speaks about the need for proper attitude on virtually every page. And I've spent some time in this pulpit talking about some of those. And I'm not going to do that again tonight. But I do want to remind you that they're there. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 10. Or uh, even in terms of our worship, God is the Spirit. So worship Him in spirit. There's the right attitude. And also in truth. Or Matthew 22:37 that we use as our text tonight. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Isn't it amazing to me? We talked about that some in Gerald's class this morning. That when the scribe came to the Lord and wanted to know what the greatest commandment was, that Jesus didn't give him a law. He said, just love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Second, it's likened to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because the, the idea is, if you have the right attitude, if you love God supremely, then what, what you want to do will be what God wants for you. If you can get to that point in your spiritual maturity. So we quickly look at those passages and many others like them and we get the idea that God is concerned not only about our actions, but he also is concerned about where our hearts are. He's concerned about our motivation as well. True Christianity begins by giving your heart to the Lord and then everything else will follow naturally. Jesus said in that great Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6 verse 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And I'm just asking you tonight, person to person, where's your treasure? Because wherever it is, that's where your heart's going to be. Are you laying up your treasures in the next life? Or are you concerned only with this one? Our challenge to you tonight and the Lord's invitation is that you come unto him, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and he will give you rest. And he will give you the power and equip you day by day to live for him. Won't you come while we stand, while we sing? Lest I forget thy thorn crown, thou.